Aquilo Season 2 Chapter 12 The Torment of Unfulfilled Needs What do you call something that's weirder than weird? What's supernatural to things that aren't of the natural world in the first place? If a square is to a cube what a cube is to a tesseract, what's that next dimension to the high strangeness that is Aquilo? I look up at the heavens. It's a deep, late-morning cerulean, marred only by the massive white cumulus that never seems to leave the town's sky. For the first time, I think I understand a little what the white-robed worshippers see in that cloud. It's constant and ever-present, soft to the eyes and soothing to the soul. If I were to pick a god, I too would choose this cloud. The sun is harsh and violent. Sure, it gives life, but not without asking for a toll. It's the clouds that mediate Apollo's fury and soothes his passions. Maybe I'm not getting the mythology right, but I doubt that Ian and his followers walk the line of any established religion. Or perhaps they do. I should really read their tracts one day. Whatever the case, at this moment, I can feel the blessing of the cloud on me. After a night of blood and demons, it's nice to have something unnatural that's on my side. So, I say, breaking the long silence. Agnes and I have been sitting on the back porch of the Aquilo for the better part of an hour. After the first twenty minutes, I went in and got us some coffee. Black with a pinch of sugar for me, and some iced concoction with as much sugar as I could pour in without the drink turning to syrup for her. I expected she'd unhinge her jaw and swallow the thing whole. This isn't a reference to her inhuman origin, but rather to her typical ravenous nature. Yet, almost an hour later, she's yet to take more than a sip. She even turned down my offer to get her some muffins. So, she answers. Her voice doesn't have its usual sting. Like me, she seems calm and, dare I say, comfortable even in the loose clothes she borrowed. How old are you? I mean, really. This would be a rude question in any other situation, but I doubt the answer is going to be anything normal, and Agnes does not disappoint. About a month, I guess. Depends how you count. She dips an absent-minded finger into her drink, sucking the liquid from the tip for taste. A month? I can't hide my surprise. Since you became what you are? The question gives her pause. Her difficulty in piecing together the context is obvious, and her answer is riddled with doubt. I suppose. I'm not sure what you mean by became, though. Then it hits me. Did Peter make you? Another piece for the puzzle. It would explain her anger at him. It gives reason to her subservience. Make me? Peter didn't make me. What you see, what you saw, that's what I am. The usual venom is back in her voice, but she looks more inclined to choke on it herself rather than inflict it on others. There's a moment where I worry she might get up and leave rather than face any more questions. Hey, it's okay. I'm just trying to get a grip on what, who you are. 
Agnes nods, pulling the reins back on her irritation. I'm doing my best to ask the right questions, but I'm not sure what thread I'm supposed to pull first to unravel her mystery. Why don't we start there, then? She says, relieving me of having to guide the conversation. What do you think I am? A vampire? Boy, did that sound more stupid out loud than it did in my head. I've been riding on this belief for a while, and I'd gotten used to how it fit with everything I knew of Agnes. But now, with the word hanging between us, it feels like the dumbest thing in the world. Agnes puts her hand on her knee and pulls herself up. She looks like she's walking away, giving up on me after my stupid answer. But as she reaches the edge of the shadow cast from the aquilo, right on the threshold of sunlight, she turns. Her hand goes up, index finger in the air. Having my attention, she spreads her arms, closes her eyes, and looks to the sky. Then she steps back. She spins in the warmth, showing again that she has the grace of a dancer. The supernatural attraction is gone, but I still crack a smile at how much she seems to enjoy that brief moment, like a prisoner tasting freedom. See? She says, sitting back down and picking her coffee up from the ground. I didn't burst into flames, turn to ash, or explode into a thousand bats. My skin didn't even glitter. I laugh despite myself. She seems so proud of herself. It's heartwarming. Okay, so not a vampire, but if you're just about a month old, how do you know about glittery vampires? How do you know about anything, for that matter? She shrugs and sips from her coffee, licking whipped cream from her lips after the fact. I don't know. I've been alive for a month, but I've existed for much longer, and I don't know why I know things. I just do. Just enough to be who I ended up being. And what is that? Her golden eyes flit away from mine. She would rather look at anything but me as she searches for the right way to answer. It takes time. Minutes, if I were to count. I'm curious and impatient, but I let her dictate the pace. A meal is more satisfying if you've hungered a little, isn't it? I wouldn't want to ruin the dish by rushing it. I don't know that there's a word for it, she explains at last. I'm bat malat. I guess if you called that thing I got in a fight with last night a hunger demon, that would make me a lust demon. Her lips tighten and widen, forced together by the strength of her embarrassment. Bot Malat? What does that mean? It means daughter of Malat, though not literally. I don't know that I have anything you'd call a mother. Unable to blink and struggling to put my thoughts together, I drink the last few drops of my coffee. Finding no answers at the bottom of my cup, I say the only thing my mind can come up with. Wow. Yep. As if of one thought, we lean back to stare at the sky. Seems we both hunger for the calming caress of the blue. Maybe ask the cloud to further ease our minds. So you feel, um... I gesticulate some random hand movements that mean nothing. All the time? Mm-hmm. She answers through her tight smile. Wow. I have so many more questions, but this new revelation makes it uncomfortable to ask anything further. I'm not a prude, but I'm not sure how deep I want to get into it either. When Eric came out, 
After he'd reconciled with himself what his preferences were, we had a long conversation about it. But he was the one leading the way. It was his revelation, and I was there as a sounding board for whatever he needed to work out. My questions were all inspired by his answers, always a way to help him express what he needed to put into words and out loud for the first time with a member of the family. This isn't the same. Agnes isn't family. She doesn't seem uncertain of what she is, just uncomfortable and ashamed. This is new territory for me, and I don't know any of the landmarks needed to navigate through it. Is that how you healed so fast? I point towards her belly, remembering the gruesome wound it bore just the previous night. I'll heal just about any wound, if I have the strength for it. I just usually don't. You looked pretty strong to me when you showed up last night. She did. When she first arrived, falling out of nowhere on the dumpster, going toe-to-toe with the hunger demon, she seemed downright unstoppable. No, she shakes her head. We're both weak, the other demon and me. We're both starving in our own ways. He's hungry for food that will never sate him, and I... I desire affections that will never satisfy. But you healed... The memory of Agnes's lips on mine as she lay dying on the floor of the egg willow comes back to me. I struggle to recall what came after, but I keep drawing a blank. Did I forget, or is something in me refusing to remember? Yes, she answers, offering me the sweetest smile I ever saw as a form of gratitude. Thank you. What did we do? The question crawls out of me like a shameful little secret. Am I more worried about what I might have done or about having forgotten it? I don't want to hurt Agnes's feelings, not when she's being so vulnerable with me, but I need to know. We kissed. That's all. I fed off the closeness and the intimacy. Nothing more. I thought it was so much worse than that. I feared more had happened, and although I'm glad to have saved her, I feel like something's been stolen from me. You didn't ask, I say, keeping my tone as neutral as I can, but the accusation slips in between my words. I didn't have much choice, she confesses, and her sincerity is so convincing. I know, I get it, but... I trail off, trying to find the words. Her life was on the line. What's a kiss for a life? I don't mean to accuse her. The kiss was forced, and I suppose she must have taken something from me in the process in order to heal, but it's something I would have given willingly had I known the circumstances. I don't want to make her feel guilty for what she needed to survive, but how much am I expected to camouflage the reality of it for her benefit? See? This is why I don't do it. Or try to. Agnes then does something I've never seen from her, something I wasn't sure she was physically capable of. She sheds a tear. Many tears, in fact, though she wipes them away with the sleeve of my shirt before they even get a chance to stream down her cheeks. Then I'm the one who does something I never thought I'd do. I swear there's no magic, no charm or enchantment inspiring my reaction. I scoot over next to the little demon, wrap one arm around her shoulders, another around her head, and bring her forehead to rest against me. And as my shirt is slowly wet with Agnes's contrition, I finally get it. 
I understand one of the basic fundamentals of owning the Aquilo Café. This is what Doris would have done. A what? The café is closed. There's no point in opening it, and I need time and space to think. Agnes is gone. She left without saying more than a further thank you, though her gratitude was already obvious by every detail of her behavior. Gulliver has taken her place, showing up moments after I walked back behind the register, forcing me to paint over the emotional wear and tear of the previous few minutes, or hours, with a quick rushed coat of good humor. Usually when Gulliver arrives, his sighs and loud, obnoxious sound of his truck are all the pomp and circumstance he needed, and he keeps a low profile otherwise. Today, he storms into the Aquilo, ignoring the closed sign, barking that he has important news for me. I don't doubt him. The man looks positively distraught. But, be that as it may, I'm confident that my news has more of an earth-shattering impact to it. I told him about Agnes. Not all the details, of course. Those are for me to keep. A succubus, I repeat. Gulliver collapses on his usual stool, forcing a weak wooden crack from it. I worry it'll break under his massive weight. A succubus? She told you that? Not in so many words, I explain. But she was crystal clear about not being a vampire, and she said she was to affection what the hunger demon is to food. And frankly, she looks like a succubus. She looks like a troubled teen to me. I serve Gulliver coffee as we talk. My mind is somewhat ablaze and unloading what I've learned from the last day can only do so much. I have to serve food, to busy my hand preparing something for someone to eat or drink, otherwise I'll go insane. She has another form. Bat wings, fangs, and horns, the whole deal. She looks absolutely terrifying and beautiful at once. I saw her get in a fight with the other demon right there. I point to the back door, expecting Gulliver to get up and go check it out for himself. Instead, he looks into the cup of black coffee I've given him, either at his own reflection or in the hopes of finding something secret hidden at the bottom. I believe you, he says, taking a sip from the mug. Would explain a few things. A few things? It's difficult to tell if Gulliver is blushing or not, but the way he sinks into his own shoulders, trying to hide his bulk, speaks for itself. The other day, when I went to find her at the dairy bar... He trails off, and I worry about what he might say next. My brain is jumping through hoops in its attempt to decide what Agnes means to me right now. A 16-year-old girl or a month-old demon? Do I feel protective of her or Gulliver in this situation? What happened? His head shakes left and right, like a dog trying to dry itself, and he straightens his back. He meets my eyes, and I feel like, for the first time, I can see the depth of Gulliver's soul. Nothing sordid, if that's what you're afraid of. I bought her ice cream. A lot of ice cream. That girl sure can't pack it in when there's an unlimited budget behind her appetite. I thought I got her, you know? She looks exactly like I felt when I first got to Aquilo, and everything was just crumbling to pieces around me. I figured, if I got a second chance... If I was lucky enough that someone reached out and helped me figure it out before I was completely screwed, maybe it was my turn to do the same for her. You know me, though, right? 
I'm not exactly the best at figuring out the right thing to say with the right amount of tact. Hell, you remember. What's the first thing I talked to you about? I smile, almost laughing. The memory much more amusing today than it was back then. You started going on and on about serial killers, while I, a complete stranger, was stuck in your truck with you. I was terrified. Right. So you get what I'm talking about. I really tried to find a good way to connect with her, to let her know I understood, maybe not the particulars, but at least the larger lines of what she's going through. The only way I figured I could do that is just lay it all out for her. Who I was before Aquilo. What Doris did for me. The parts I learned about myself. What I decided to leave behind, and the pieces I put in to replace what was gone. It's not a great story, Miriam, but I thought maybe it would help her to hear it. To hear that there can be some sort of light at the end of the tunnel, even if it's just a reflection of the light you cast for yourself. There's a pang of jealousy and hurt in my heart. Gulliver and I have gotten close in the last few months. Every week he drops off my supplies, and every week we spend a few hours drinking coffee, tasting pastries, and talking together. Despite all that, and the fact that I'm the new de facto Doris in Aquilo, he's never felt comfortable enough to explain to me what it was my great-grand-aunt did for him. Why does Gulliver feel like he owes his current life to Doris? I thought I'd reached her, you know, he continues. She didn't tell me what her deal was. I didn't ask her. She just sat next to me on my truck's bumper and put a hand on mine. She asked if it was cool, and I said, yeah. We sat there for a long while. An hour or so, maybe more. Just watching the sunset. And now I'm jealous of Gulliver. What's wrong with me? I can chalk this up to residual effects of Agnes's presence, but isn't it a little ridiculous to envy him for getting to hold her hand for a few hours? How juvenile is it that I want to brag to him that she kissed me, even though not so long ago I was still outraged that it had been a stolen kiss? When she finally had to go, I was so tired, more tired than I've been in ages. I slept in the next day. It's fine. I cancelled most of my contracts for the week anyways. I guess that explains what happened to Ms. Edna. It's such a matter-of-a-fact statement, almost suggesting that I should have come to the same conclusion. Wait, what? What about Helen? Oh, that's what I came here to tell you. She's fallen ill. I saw an ambulance in front of her office early this morning. They don't usually tell random guys like me what they're doing, but I know one of the EMTs. He told me they were taking her to Montreal. I'm winded by the news. The breath knocked right out of me. The only other time I remember being gutted like that in my recent memory was when a demon literally punctured my lower body. Helen Edna? My Aquilo dad? They've kept everyone else who's fallen ill here, at the local hospital. Even when Theodore Riviere fell into a coma, they didn't transfer him to the big city. How bad is Helen's case? Will she be okay? Will she survive? Does Detective Wilson know? I ask, unable to keep my voice at a reasonable volume. I don't know, maybe. He's a cop, so I guess someone will tell him at some point. Why am I bringing up Wilson like he's the obvious next of kin? It's like I'm already giving Helen up for dead. They're taking her to a hospital. They'll take care of her. Right? And you think Agnes is responsible for that? Gulliver mulls it over. 
He cocks his head, thinking about the question, stirring it in his mind like sugar in coffee. You said it yourself, he explains. She's a succubus. She feeds off of affection or something. If just holding my hand was as exhausting to me as a full day's hard work, I suppose maybe she had a talk with Ms. Edna. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Helen did address Agnes by her first name once, and Gulliver has pointed out the similarities between Agnes and me when we first got to Aquillow. Maybe Helen decided to extend the same kind of help and support she gave me. Or maybe someone else put Michael Valencia in the hospital and Theodore Le Riviere in a coma for a day. Maybe Helen didn't have that much contact with Agnes at all. But a bitter souvenir reminds me of someone who did. Peter. I only noticed the pieces of the spoon when I went to check on the raccoons. Not only did I take the time to make sure my furry backdoor neighbors were alive, but I brought them a bit of a thank-you gift in the form of every last leftover pastry and sandwich I could find. It's not that much. I haven't taken the time to bake for the cafe in a couple of days, and half the baked goods are a little stale. However, split amongst six dumpster dwellers, it should be more than enough to pay them back for taking my side while Agnes and the hunger demon squared off. At first glance, it's easy to jump to conclusions and assume the spoon fragments were gathered by the raccoons. In fact, if I were to pick one, I'd say this was the work of brioche. Upon closer inspection, I can see a level of care that even my favorite ring-tailed trash lover never displays. The pieces of handle are put end to end, sorted in the most likely order necessary to rebuild the spoon. They're like pieces of a puzzle arranged together without being assembled. The spoon will never see use again. Even if I glue it back together, it will remain too fragile. It would snap the moment I tried to stir a thick sauce. No amount of king's horses and king's men could allow me to use that spoon again. And it breaks my heart. I guess your time has come to retire, too. Now the fragments sit in a pile on the Aquilo's counter. The only lights keeping me company are the ones above the register. In any other context, this would be a cozy little night to myself, sipping some experimental cocktail and trying out a new recipe of cookies or some never-miss comfort food. Maybe I'd be reading some trashy romance novel, but tonight, it's Doris's recipe grimoire I'm pouring over. I must have gone over this thing a million times. Superficially, it looks like an old fancy recipe book. The workmanship on the worn leather and binding and the chipped gold leaf lettering are almost too on the nose, walking the line between a homemade scrapbook and an ancient tome. It looks like something that was put together only a few years ago and artificially weathered and aged. But there are pages with recipes signed by Melody, who I assume to be the first of the Dufour witches to own the Aquilo, over a century ago. If this book had been in the family since the very beginning, then you'd assume that the recipes therein would be distributed evenly, starting with Melody's creations, followed by Madeleine, then Elaine's, all the way up to Doris. However, there's no rhyme or reason for how each entry fits in. There are chocolate cakes next to vichyssoise, and notes from the oldest witches at the bottom of even some of Doris's recipes. Without classifications, chronology, or even respect for logic and causality, it's impossible to understand how the book is meant to be structured. Finding a pattern to the recipes is a quest for futility. 
In Aquilo, I'd be more likely to find a leprechaun at the end of a rainbow than I am to figuring this out on my own. But I don't have much of a choice. I can't count on Agnes to stand up to the hunger demon again. She wouldn't survive a second encounter. Besides, maybe there's something in here that could help her. Ugh, my kingdom for an index, I complain out loud. My soul for a table of contents. What a mighty price for something so mundane. I didn't hear him come in. I can't decide if that's because he did something to the chimes, or was I so consumed by the grimoire that I didn't notice. The voice is unmistakable. Suave and calm, it still quickens my breath and warms my skin. Between last night's events and hearing Peter speak again, I wonder how much more of this tug-of-war my feelings can take. This is made so much worse knowing that none of these emotions are real. Whatever tingling in my heart I might have felt seeing Agnes's true form unleashed is a result of the creature she is. Knowing that, it's a small jump to the next conclusion. That Peter is the same manner of creature. Succubus, eh? It's a struggle to pass for indifferent in his presence. The little bit of fear and the uncontrollable excitement must be dripping out of me like I'm an overstuffed ravioli. The attitude doesn't work, and the revelation even less so. If my intent was to rattle Peter, it falls flat. Is that what she told you? His eyes wander around the Aquilo's darkened dining room, as if discovering it anew. Every turn of his head, every shift of his look digs into the shadows in the corners of the cafe. He reminds me of Detective L'Amour and the manner in which he canvasses a crime scene, masking a thorough survey of the area into a series of casual observations. He's looking for something. Or someone. I doubt there are many of my mortal friends that would worry Peter, not if he's the kind of creature I think he is. That leaves only one quarry for his hunt. Agnes. I'm assuming you and her are the same. Hmm. He still seems distracted, giving me only a slice of his attention. I suppose that's true enough. Some subtle differences if you want to split hairs. What else did she tell you? We didn't talk about you, if that's what you're worried about. Peter is stepping ever closer to the register. He's slow and careful, the same way I am when decorating a cake with delicate piping worried that if I rush, I'll break something irreparable. His proximity makes me warm, both because of my increased pulse and the blush on my skin. My loneliness and vulnerability are becoming more and more apparent as he steps into the light over the counter. My mind paints a portrait of him, with wings like a bat and skin the color of warm lilac. It's a terrible mental rendition of what he could be, and there's no doubt that he would be as magnificent and deadly as Agnes. Except, Agnes was tired. So tired, in fact, that she almost died at the hands of the hunger demon. Peter has shown none of his sister's restraint. There's no telling what manner of creature hides beneath his mask of human charms. I'm hurt, he obviously lies. But this isn't about me. I'm here about my sister. She's in danger. I flinch. He sees it and smirks. I've shown my hand, and now he knows that I lost a breath over the mention of Agnes in peril. Ah. He sits opposite me, 
as if he were a client on any normal day. She's been here. She was here last night and earlier this morning. Pardon me? He seems genuinely surprised. Did my sweet sister bring herself to spend the night? I... My hesitation is honest. I'm not sure what to say next. I don't know what he wants or what I should tell him, but I follow my instincts. I don't remember. And I don't. That's the truth. But also, loss of memory seems to be a recurring theme with Peter and Agnes. I may not have a good lie ready for him, but I can leverage honesty in my favor. Let's just hope it works out. His smile tells me that perhaps it has. Well, that's good news, isn't it? Absent-minded, I nod. You know, his attitude seems to relax. I didn't think she'd ever allow herself to do what has to be done, to be herself. But one can only deny their true nature for so long. Don't you agree? I wouldn't know. Peter squints, trying to decide if he should go on. For the very first time since we've met, I find him ugly. Maybe it's because he's looking at me like I'm beneath his notice, or perhaps it's the unspoken threat that he represents. His hand reaches out to Doris's grimoire, leafing through the pages like it's an afterthought. There he says, pointing at an illustration on one of the pages. It's an artful representation of a Thanksgiving turkey on one of the older entries. I can see from the handwriting that Elaine wrote and drew this. What do you think when you have to pull the guts out of this bird? Dress it. Stuff it. Stuff bread and vegetables into its body cavity. Bake it until the skin browns and crisps, and then eat it. What are your feelings on that? I have vegetarian friends who'd argue with me, but it's feeding myself or my friends and family. I do make an effort to buy humanely sourced meat, if this is about a guilt trip. Not at all. Quite the opposite. We all have a place in the food chain. There's no point in going out of your way to make an animal suffer, but you are higher up the chain. It's natural for you to eat the flesh of the bird. Agnes is higher up on our respective ladder, but she refuses to take nourishment from those below her. Except, you see, where your vegetarian friends have other options, they can get their fill from non-animal sources and protect their sensitive little souls. Agnes doesn't have alternatives. The comparison is harsh, but I see where he's going. The hunger demon is the same. If it weren't for the magic petit four... It would keep feasting on the digestive organs of lesser beings, finding in them what it's lacking in itself. So either Agnes feeds, or she dies. Oh, she should be so fortunate, Peter says, almost mocking. If that was an option, I'm convinced she would have allowed herself to waste away. No, no. Do you know what hell is? I shake my head unable to pull back from him, but intimidated by how much he's leaning over the counter, almost spilling over to my side. Hell is a need unfulfilled. It's a thirst without quenching and a hunger without end. It's an anger that boils you from the inside. Hell is the lack of something essential and for which there is no solution. Hell. He hesitates for a moment acting like this last part is more difficult than the rest, like whatever comes next is more of a confession than an explanation. 
Hell, Peter continues, hell is desire without satisfaction. Aquilo is written by J.F. Dubow and narrated and produced by me, Amy Frost. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You have no idea how much it helps. Want to support the show? Buy us a coffee. Visit ko-fi.com slash aquilo to donate a cup. Questions? Comments? Email us at aquilo at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the username aquilo.